Um, we're going through the Bible. <laughs> We've been going through the Bible, seeing that it's all about Jesus. And um, we're going to talk about a prophet named Jeremiah. And I think the reason he's important, he's very important to our day, as all of them are. Um, but a couple years ago, during, uh, during the Lenten season, for the 40 days before Easter, uh, leading up to Easter, a lot of us did a, a, a detox, and we did a bunch of different things. And one of the things that... Um, that our daughter Manny did was she uh, would take out our old globe and she would spin it and then she would put her finger on a country and whatever uh, country her finger fell on, we would pray. She would ask me, what's, what is this country about? What's the capital? And sometimes I'd make something up and she would ask me, what are the things that we need to pray for? If we had missionaries there, I'd tell her their name and um, we would pray for, pray for the country. And our only rule was, hey, if you land on a, a country that you've already landed on, then we'll move to another country. And so... Um, it's interesting that the fickle finger of fate constantly fell on America. Right? So we'd have to spin it again. And, as I, you know, and I would write on Facebook what country we prayed for. And I accidentally wrote America twice. And so someone said, you wrote America twice. And I said, oops, my bad. And then someone else chimed in and other people wrote in. And they basically said something to the effect of, it's because America needs our prayers more than anyone else does. And I think there's something... Uh, Really, really keen and profound about that. Did you know that more missionaries, and I heard this um, about a year ago, that more missionaries come to America, come to America than to any other country? That's wild. That missionaries are coming to America, once seen as the hotbed of Christianity. If there's, I mean, that was a year and a half ago, but two years, a year and a half later, we're seeing so much in our news, in the national news, so much in the media about our country that shows that, yeah, we are a nation in demise. And we could talk for all we want about America the beautiful and all of these great things about our country, but I don't think we can deny the fact that there's a lot of stuff that's happening in our country that shows that morally and spiritually, we're a country that is collapsing rapidly. The moral decay as it relates to uh, sensuality, sexuality, homosexuality, calling sinful things right and right things sinful. The muting of Christian voices and all of these things that are happening in our world. There was a, I read something recently that said um, this man had this vision and he saw um, this, this, uh, a bunch of calamities that are coming to America. And again, I'm not, I, I don't necessarily believe all these things to be true, but it is something to, to consider. He said that he believes that there's going to be a time of great purging in America. And I think it's, I mean, it's obviously already begun as the faith of many has grown cold in the midst of hardships where Christians are being persecuted in the United States. Uh, one Christian woman was recently beheaded by uh, a Muslim in, I think, Louisiana or something like that. And quickly that time has come. And this person was saying there's going to be um, natural disasters that come to America. There's going to be sickness that comes to America. There's going to be terrorist acts that are perpetrated against our country. And it's going to purge and it's going to be a time of retribution before there's a time of revival. And he says that he believes that the third great awakening is going to come to America after a season of purging where we begin to repent and to go back to our Bibles and go back to our Christian roots in order that we might experience the reviving hand of God. Again, I don't know, you know, I'm, I don't, I, you know, I don't know if this is true, but I do know that that first part is true, that we're a nation that has rapidly fallen into disorder and chaos and dismay. And there are many people 
even within the church, who don't look much different from those in the world. And if there was ever a prophet whose message is pertinent and applicable and relevant to us here in America, it would be the prophet Jeremiah, because he spoke in a time of moral and spiritual decay amongst the people of God. So the first uh, group of prophets that we've been talking about were all preaching during the time when there were two kingdoms amongst the people of God, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And they were saying, listen, if you don't repent, then God's going to wipe you out. He's going to take you out. You're going to find judgment come to you through Assyria, and you need to repent. But they didn't. They ignored the Hoseas and the Isaiahs and the Amoses. They ignored all of these people. And so around 700 B.C., the Assyrians invaded And they took down uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. All the while, the southern kingdom was there, Judah, watching it. And the prophets were saying to them, if you don't repent, then the same thing is going to happen to you guys. That the violence and the terror and the oppression and the injustice that you are perpetrating against your own people and against those around you is going to come back and you're going to face judgment if you don't repent. See what happened to your northern neighbors. See what happened to them. And if you don't surrender to God then the same thing's going to happen to you. And Jeremiah was preaching in this time. And for about 40 years, he was called into ministry. He was about 20 or 30 years old. He began prophesying and preaching. And he actually lived to see the day that his prophecy would come to fulfillment. When in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire, which had overthrown the Assyrians as the world superpower, came and they destroyed Babylon. I'm sorry, they destroyed Jerusalem. And they took all of these remaining exiles into Babylon. And it was the end of the kingdom as we knew it at that time. So Jeremiah is the prophet and he's preaching during that time. And a question I want to ask is, what does it take? What does it look like for a prophet, for a prophetic voice to rise up for such a time as this in our nation? What does, a, what does it look like to be a prophet that people in our schools and in our workplaces in our homes, and our families need? What does it mean to be prophetic, to have a voice, and to not just have great ideas about what the world needs, but to really be an agent of change, to bring in the kingdom of God in a time of great need? Jeremiah, we're going to look at, and Jer- he's a hard guy to read because he doesn't write chronologically. He bounces back and forth, a bunch of different places. You don't really understand. It's hard to get the flow, but he's preaching the southern kingdom of Judah, We're going to read in uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. This is where we'll start in order that we can see the reason why judgment was coming to them. And then um, we're going to talk about how we can be prophetic as well. Jeremiah 2, 13. This is God's word. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So we're going to start here, and we're going to bounce to a few different passages. But this is the reason why God was bringing judgment to Babylon. There's a ton of other things, but He's saying this is one of them. The first thing that we're going to see: three thoughts here. We're going to look at, and we're going to kind of, yeah, bounce to different passages. But three thoughts. The first one is this: um, if we want to be prophetic, okay, uh, we cannot preach the good news without the bad news. We must preach both the good news and the bad news. We can't just preach one 
or the other. This is the number one rule of evangelism. You cannot preach the good news if they don't know the bad news. You can't show them that Jesus is the way if they don't realize that they're lost. That didn't make sense. There was a, when I was in college, I was a, a junior in college. I was one of the officers in my campus ministry, and we were having a retreat. And so we'd organize this retreat, spring retreat, and the guest speaker was one of my old pastors from my home church. His name was Pastor Sam. Uh, not, not one of the Pastor Sams that you know, but a different Pastor Sam. And uh, he was a speaker, and we were all at the retreat center when he rolled up into the parking lot, and I saw his car, and I and a, a, and a group of people went to greet him. And he came out of the car, and because I, I knew him, I gave him a hug, and he gave me a hug. And you know, there's a time limit for a hug, right? Hug, one, 1,000, two, 1,000, maybe. If you're going out the door here, maybe one, 1,000, that's it. It's about two seconds. But he held me for a long time. And I was like, mm, this is kind of awkward. Right? So I'm like looking around at my friends. I was like, I don't know what's going on here. So it was about 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, maybe about like 7, 1,000. And then he stopped and he shook my shoulders. And then he said, your brother's going to be all right. And I was like, what? And he said to me, your brother's going to be all right. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, I guess, um, I guess your parents didn't tell you. Maybe they didn't want you to be distracted during the retreat. And he went to tell me that my brother was in a car accident and he was ejected from the car and uh, he had to be uh, medevaced over to a hospital. He was uh, unconscious for a little bit. When he woke up, uh, he didn't recognize anyone. He didn't recognize uh, my mom or dad. So they had to take him by helicopter to another hospital. And, and I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't know any of this stuff. And so for me, when he said, your brother's going to be all right, I was like, of course he's going to be all right. Because I didn't know the bad news, the good news didn't mean anything to me. If we don't know that we're in war, then news of peace doesn't mean anything to us. If we don't know that we're living in times of trouble, then the news of peace doesn't mean anything to us. See, we don't know what the good news is unless we understand first the bad news. See, in in a little bit, we're going to come to this table. This table is an amazing table of grace. I love the first week of every month. We come to the Lord's table. But for people who don't really understand what's going on here, this doesn't mean anything. Why are people taking bread, dipping it in juice, and going back? And the question that a lot of people are asking, the number one question a lot of people are asking is, does it taste good? The other question that people are asking is, what's the big deal? What is the big deal? And unless you understand the bad news and the good news of this table will be lost on us. Unless you understand the bad news. We're going to come to the table in, in a little bit. And as we serve the elements, it's always our house church shepherds that stand up here and they serve the elements and they say the person's name. They say, Kobe, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Suman, this is the blood of Christ that was shed for you. And the first time that one of our shepherds, Joyce, served the elements, she said she couldn't stop crying. She was bawling. Some of your grape juice was salty that day. But she was weeping. So we said, what was that all about? So I asked her this morning just to make sure. I said, 
why, why was it so emotional for you? And she said, because I saw people, like personally, each one for whom Jesus Christ had died. When I said their name, Gigi, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. It was so personal that each person needed Jesus to die for them. If we don't understand that, then this table is just having a little bit of a meal before we go out into having lunch at Chipotle. But the more we understand that this table pictures forth a ceremonial blood transfusion, that each of us have been infected with a with a disease that's going to ravage our bodies, is going to lead us straight to death. But our, that tainted blood has been replaced by the blood of another who's only he had pure blood and his blood coming into us saves us and it came at the cost of his life. That we, it was us who should have said, this is my body that's broken for my sin. This is my blood that was shed for the punishment of my sins. And even so, to spend an eternity apart from God in hell. That's what we deserve. But to see that Jesus did that for you and for me, this is what makes good news, the gospel good news. This is what makes this table the most irresistible table that I long to come to. I long for the first of each month so that I can sing about the mercy and the wonders of God because I know that this is for me. And I know that the only thing that my life deserved was bad, 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 bad news. But because of Christ... Because of love, because of grace, this has been given to me. The bad news of the situation in Jeremiah's life is that my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the springs of living water. And they've drunk from broken cisterns, dug their own cisterns that cannot hold any water. God is saying, I am a, sp- I'm a spring of living water, fresh Amazing. Have you ever had water like this before? Like from a mountain? A few years back, I think it was in 07, when a group of us went to China and North Korea, we went to a mountain called uh, Mount Baekdu, Baekdusan in Korea and, and China. And we went there and we went, drove all the way to the top of it. It was freezing cold up there. And we had coffee <laughs> made with this spring water, purest of waters. And they were selling lamian in that place, cup noodles, made with the purest of waters. So amazing. We didn't like crowd or we never want to leave this place because the water was so good. And God is saying, that's what I gave to you. But what you did was you rejected that. And out of the mountains and out of the hills, you dug these cisterns that didn't produce their own water, but they were just little wells that held water in them. And as the water collected, it would There would be dirt, there'd be muck, there'd be all this stuff in it. Say, that's what you chose to drink instead. And in seasons of drought, when those cisterns would become dry and they would crack, after a while, they would no longer hold any water in them. These things that you're looking to that you think is going to bring you life, is going to bring you satisfaction, is going to bring you hope, they don't do it. And he's saying, this is a charge I'm bringing against you, that that's what you have done. That's what you've done. I am the one who can satisfy you, but you've turned to other gods. You've bowed down to idols. You've worshipped in foreign kings, and you look to them for hope. This morning, as we were praying before our service, our, our, our brother John was, uh, was sharing about how we dig our own cisterns, how we look to success, and we look to money, we look to significance in order to find these things. It's not that we desire too many things. He said the desire is that we desire too little. 
that we're too easily satisfied with the false and fleeting pleasures of this life that we can't long for more of Jesus within us. Streams of true, refreshing, satisfying, living water. And he's saying, this is what America is doing. This country that was founded upon Christian principles, this country that the founding fathers would have, they would have no idea how to, how to build a country if not for the foundations found in Scripture. And yet we've come so far from that ideal. And so the prophet Jeremiah is saying there's bad news. You've broken this covenant with God. This marriage relationship, your commitment that you made to him was broken and was completely shattered. And he's saying judgment is going to come. You're going to be taken into exile in Babylon. And you're going to be oppressed by a people who hate God, who hate you, whose only desire for you is to destroy you and to hurt you. And yet in the midst of all of that bad news, in the, midst of the, in the midst of that, you know, when you guys graduate from high school or college, a lot of times you get a card, uh, a birthday, or you get a graduation present, and someone will write this verse on there, and inevitably somebody will write Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah 29.11 was written in the midst of all of the rubble. And in the midst of that, God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. In the midst of all that is wrong, in the midst of all that is chaotic, in the midst of all that is broken because of your sin, he says, I have plans for you. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you a future. I'm going to give you something that you deeply, that you're longing for that could not be conceivable in this hour. In the midst of the bad news, the prophet brought good news of hope that they needed to believe in in order that they could trust in God again. And then from chapter 31 until chapter 34, he talks about this new covenant that's coming. Because they broke the old covenant, because they broke the old marriage vows, he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. In this new covenant, it's not going to be that the laws are written on paper or stone. The laws are going to be written in our hearts where we don't obey just because we feel like that's what we're supposed to. We're going to obey because we want to obey God. A new covenant is going to come when, when all that is broken in the world is going to be made right. A new covenant is coming where all of your sins that you've committed are going to be forgotten and remembered no more. A new covenant time is coming when all that is wrong is going to be made right and you're going to be restored to your rightful end. He's saying there is coming a time when this new covenant is going to be established. This new covenant is going to be made. And in the midst of the bad news, in the midst of all of that bad news, Jeremiah brings good news to the people of God and says, you need to hear because you need to trust and you need to believe. We can't preach good news to people unless we help them to see the reality of the bad news. We want to speak truth and life into a land. It's got to be done with this kind of a posture, understanding that there's bad news always before there's good news. The second thing that we see then, the second thing that we see then is not, it, not only do we need to proclaim and preach that truth, but we cannot preach truth without tears. If 
you look at Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, this is what Jeremiah says to his, as he prophesies, as he preaches to his people. He says, oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. If you look uh, four chapters later in chapter 13, verse 17, he says a similar thing. But if you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. It is for these two verses that Jeremiah is famous amongst all prophets as uh, for being the weeping prophet. And he wept over the sins of his land. He wept for the brokenness in his nation. He wept for the brokenness over the people of God. And his pillow was soaked with, stained with tears because his heart was broken over the condition of the people that he longed for. Are there in our day people like this, prophets who would weep for the lost in our lives? People who weep for the brokenness of a nation. And ever since I heard one of my uh, one of my preaching pastoral mentors say that he said, you know, I still believe with all of my heart that a weeping prophet can change a nation today. Do you believe that? What's it going to take for America to be changed? And it's not enough to recognize and to know and to see and to agree with it. But what are we going to do? Do you believe that a weeping prophet can still change a nation? This is the exact opposite of Jonah. Jonah just walked over to Assyria, walked over to Nineveh, said, 40 days and it's done. And then he left. No tears, no brokenness, no pain. Just resentment that they actually repented. But Jeremiah was different. He was the opposite. He wept over the brokenness of the people. He shed tears day and night because the people would not listen to God. Do we shed tears for the people in our house churches gone astray? Listen, when, when, when you hear about people who come to you with their issues and with their challenges and with their struggles, is there a place within us where the dam breaks and we just begin to weep over the needs of, of our people? You see, it, it's not enough to have truth because there are a lot of people, I tell you, there's a lot of people who have a corner on the truth, but without tears, these people can be very dangerous. You couple truth with tears. When Jesus, in John chapter 11, went to the tomb of Lazarus, and he saw his sisters broken over it, Martha and Mary, and both of them said, Jesus, if you were here, Tim Keller says, to Martha, he said, I give you the truth. I am the resurrection and the life. Your brother will rise. To Mary, she says the same thing. Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And in John eleven thirty five, 35, we hear these famous words, says Jesus wept. Jesus, the truest of prophets, 
came to his people in need and he spoke not only truth, but it was truth coupled with tears. Listen, truth and tears makes a prophet. Truth and tears is prophetic. But truth without tears is pathetic. And I tell you why. So if you've ever been to college, if you ever had a campus, been on a campus, you may see people like Preacher Bob who stands at a well-populated corner of campus. For me, at the university I went to, it was at the lawn where in between classes, tons of people would gather. And he would stand there. Sometimes he would hold a cross and he would say, you're going to hell to passersby. You're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. You're going to hell because you're gay, because you party, you're a slut, you're an alcoholic, all of these things. And he would use language like that. He would say, you're going to hell. And I remember looking at him and I would say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Was he true? Was he right? Was what he's saying true? In a sense, he said what he's saying was true because if we don't repent, whatever our sin is, yeah, we stand under the just condemnation of God. Yeah, that's true. But sometimes you can speak the truth in such a way that it no longer becomes true. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where he, you, you, uh, this is the greatest book in the world, but you could take it and if you hit someone over the head with it until they pass out, this no longer becomes good. And there are people who do that with what they think is the truth of God's word. Truth without tears is pathetic in that it diminishes the honor of Jesus Christ in the world. But truth coupled with tears is powerful and it is prophetic in that it imitates the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. Truth and tears. There are times, as I was writing, preparing this sermon, um, I had to repent. You know, Jeremiah, when he preaches this word, he preaches with tears. And 40 years after he preaches, 586, what he prophesied to be true came true. And his people were ransacked and ravaged and their people were taken from their homes. He was exiled into Egypt where he would later be stoned by the very people to whom he preached, dying faithfully for the cause of Christ. But when judgment came at the hands of Babylon, Jeremiah didn't stand there and say, I told you so. I knew this was going to happen. You guys are getting what you deserve. He didn't say that. Jeremiah wept. He wept for the brokenness of his people. And so as I was writing, I had to repent in my heart because I thought of times when people have come to me and they said, hey, you know what? I need to, I need to ask you some questions about, I need some advice. And they share their situation. I don't know if they're coming for advice or they're coming for blessing on decisions they've already made. But I have to tell them what I have to tell them based on what I know of the Word of God, right? I can't make them feel good if that's not what the Word of God is wanting them to say. And our senior pastor always says, you know, David, you're the only one who's going to speak truth. If you don't do it, no one's going to do it. You've got a hard job, but you've got to do it. And so I'll tell people sometimes what they don't want to hear. And whether they take my advice or leave it, I can't force, I can make a meal for them, but I can't force them to eat. I'm not going to stuff it down their throat. I'm not going to make them do something. We're all adults here. But they'll come back later, maybe a, a couple weeks or a couple months, and they'll say, okay, this is how I went against what you said, and there's sin and, and all of these consequences. 
And there have been parts of my heart, I'll just be honest, and, and this is to my shame, where I've said in my heart, I knew this was going to happen. You're not smart for not listening to what I said. And there have been far too many, too few times where the first inclination of my heart was to weep with them and to shed tears. But I went to truth and said, I told you so. And I just felt God just convicting my heart that I need to be prophetic in the way that Jeremiah was. Not just speak truth, but I need to be broken over the sins of my people. I need to be broken over the sins of our land. I need to be broken over the sins of a country because it's the only way, the only way that a nation, that a people, that a group is going to be revived. We need truth and we need tears. The last thing that we see. Last thing that we see is that God is more interested in our faithfulness than he is with our results. So what does it mean to be a preacher in our, to be a prophet in our day? God is a lot more interested in our faithfulness than he is in our results. Jeremiah chapter 1, if you look at the call of Jeremiah, when he was just, even before he was ever born, I mean, this verse, along with Psalm 139, tells us that even before a child is ever born, when a child is conceived, this is a person that God has a plan for. And that abortion at any stage, at any term, at any point, is the death and the murder of one made in the image of God. But he says in verse 4, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, Don't say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. If you look at that last part, you must go to everyone I send you to, say whatever I command you, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. This was the call that Jeremiah had in his life when he was 20 years old. When he's 20 years old, he's saying, go to an entire nation of people and tell them that they're living in sin. Don't be afraid of them. The message that you have is not a feel-good message. There's no Joel Osteen action here. It's not something that's going to promise health and wealth to you. It's a message that's extremely difficult, but don't be afraid because I'm with you. And even if they don't listen, just stay the course, Jeremiah. And he did. And he was faithful. And through his ministry, nobody repented. Yet Jeremiah is hailed as one of the great prophets of his day. Why? Because God is a whole lot more interested in us being faithful than he is in the results of our labor. If he was interested in just the results, then Jonah would be a far greater prophet than Jeremiah was. Jonah, the prophet who said, whatever, fine, I'll go. And he gives his message and the entire city repents. Jonah shows us that just because you see results doesn't mean you're walking with God. And Jeremiah shows us the opposite. 
that just because you don't see results doesn't mean you're not walking with God. Listen, some of y'all have been laboring for a long time. You've been at your thing, leading a house church, evangelizing to the law, serving your people, and you feel like there's nothing, nothing. Why aren't there more people coming to know the Lord? Why aren't there more people responding? Why don't anyone care about what I'm teaching them? And God is saying, listen, be faithful and leave the results to me. Be faithful. Be faithful with what you have. Be faithful with what I've given. Be faithful with the calling that I've given to you. I'll take care of the results. I'll take care of the rest of it. Because in the economy of God, he sees and measures success in a way that other people don't. In churches, we measure by buildings and budgets and how many butts are in the pews. But God doesn't care about that. He says, I want you to be faithful to the calling that I've given to you. In the eyes of God, in the economy of God, so much more faithfulness is success. And in fact, you want to be successful? He says, you be faithful. In the front of my Bible, I have, I have this thing. It says, by Scripture's definition, here's what true success is. Trying to, I want to be liberated from the world's ideas of success. And the first thing I wrote is, Scripture's definition says, true success is faithfulness to the call of God. I need to remind myself that this is what it means to be a success in the eyes of God. It's to be faithful. That's the number one thing that I need to do. And whatever happens, people respond or not, people come to know Jesus or not, people are moved. Or I, that's up to God. But my call, my role, your call, your role is to be faithful to the task that God has placed before you. Because God measures in a far different way than you and I and the rest of the world measures. You know, when we think, I, I love football. I'm a, I'm a big football fan. I know a lot of football players' names. I don't know them personally, but I know a lot of their names. I like playing fantasy football. Now, the average person on the street doesn't know many football fans, many football players. We have a girl in our congregation, Sarah, who doesn't really like football, but she may know someone because he's good-looking, maybe. Tom Brady. Or because he's married to someone good-looking. Tom Brady. Or because he models good-looking clothes. Tom Brady. Not because he... He was involved in, in the biggest cheating scandal in the NFL, Tom Brady. And she might know him for that, but the people that we know, the average person knows, are usually the quarterbacks. Because when they do well, they get all the praise. Because you see how many touchdowns they've thrown, how many Super Bowl rings they've won. But did you know that almost every quarterback, for Christmas or after they get an award, they buy gifts? Who do they buy gifts to? For. Not the people they throw the ball to, but for the five large men in front of them who are protecting them and making sure that they stay upright and don't get knocked on their can. And so Drew Brees, New Orleans Saints quarterback, sent his five offensive linemen on an all-expenses-paid vacation. Right? Robert Griffin III, the greatest quarterback in the NFL, got, X <laughs> got Xbox Ones for all of his offensive linemen. Same thing with Russell Wilson. Uh, Joe Montana, back in the day, used to get Rolex gold Rolex watches for his offensive linemen. Tom Shady Brady actually did something good, and he bought Audi A7s for all of his offensive linemen. Not that he can't afford it. He should have gotten them more, but he did that anyway. But they get these people. Why? Because they understand the rest of the world doesn't see. You can't measure their success by statistics. It's things that other people can't see. But after the end of a long season or at the end of a, a long drive where they score a touchdown or a field goal, 
These lumbering men cause earthquakes as they run off the field and get to the sidelines, and it's them that their coach will stop, and he'll look them in the eye and say, you did great, and pat them on the head and say, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. You can't measure that tangibly. But they were faithful to their call to protect their quarterback, and that's it. That's it. One day, my friends, you and I are going to run to the sidelines of life. And our coach is going to be standing there. And we might think we can scoot by him, but he's going to stop us. He's going to stop us. He's going to take our helmet off. He's going to look us in the eye and say, I'm proud of you. You did it. Why? He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Jesus did not say, well done, good and successful servant. You have been so successful with all of your results. He's going to say, you were faithful with what I gave you. And I've said this on many occasions to people in different contexts. Would we be faithful to the call of God to live out our purpose in our generation, even if we never live to see the day that what we talked about and what we prayed for came to fruition, would we still be faithful? And are we okay to pray and long for revival that we might not see, but that would make for a better tomorrow for our children and their children's children to come? Would we be willing to invest prayer into that bank, even though we might not see it? You see, this was Jeremiah's heart. This was his desire. And no one ever heeded the message of Jeremiah. But he wept faithfully and he preached faithfully until the very end of his life where he was stoned for being faithful in Egypt, giving his life simply to proclaim the greatness of God. His success isn't measured by your results. In fact, some of the greatest prophets of our day and some of the greatest prophets who've ever lived did not live to see the results of their lives. In fact, there was another prophet who wept, and many times over. Matthew 13, says Jesus wept. You look in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says when Jesus looked at Jerusalem, he wept over their brokenness. He wept over their sin. See, Jesus was the one to whom Jeremiah pointed par excellence. In fact, actually in Matthew 13, it's, it doesn't say he wept, but it says, Jesus says, who do you say I am? Matthew 16, who do you say I am? And other people began saying, well, some say you're the prophet. Some say John the Baptist. Some say, oh, it says, some people say you're Jeremiah. Because the life of Jesus was so similar to the life of Jeremiah. Not that not that Jesus was trying to be like Jeremiah. It was the fact that Jeremiah and all of the Bible was pointing forward. Every prophet pointing us forward, looking, longing for the day when Jesus would come. The weeping prophet. And it was he who had come and stand before his people. And as we're about to do, he took the bread and the wine. And what did he say about it? He said, this is the new covenant 
in my blood. The, cov- the new covenant times that Jeremiah was talking about, he was talking about Jesus. See, if there ever was an unsuccessful prophet, it was Jesus. Out of his 12, one of them killed himself. Ten of them ran away. Only one was there when he was dying on the cross. But God saw the faithfulness of his son, Jesus. And through it, he blessed it. And he vindicated the work of Jesus in the resurrection, saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been so faithful. Now I'll give you all things. And we want to be a prophet who points people to Christ. We want to be a prophet in the way that Jeremiah was. Then we got to look to the one to whom Jeremiah pointed, the truly faithful one. And in seeing him, in loving him, in being melted in our hearts by him, then we begin to weep. Then we begin to preach. Then we begin to live the way that he's called us to live in order that we can hope again for a nation. We can believe again. We can dream again. And we can be used by God to bring hope to a world in need. Let's pray together. Let's pray for a moment as we respond to the word of God. We're just going to offer up a prayer of surrender to him. We prepare to come to the Lord's table. Let's confess anything that we need to confess before the Lord. Confess anything that we need to uh, surrender before the Lord Jesus Christ. Any ways in which uh, we've, any areas in which we have unconfessed sin within our lives. Uh, Let's bring that before the Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, whoever comes to this table, or Paul says, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians, whoever comes to the table in an unworthy manner brings judgment upon himself. Let's pray and Ask the Lord to search our hearts so that our hearts might be right before him in order that we can understand and appropriate the bad news that this should have been us, but the good news that it was not us, it was him who died for us. Let's pray together for a couple moments and then we'll continue in our our worship service. Father in heaven, we confess that uh, confess that a lot of times we we forget we forget the way that we're called to live. We drink from dirty, broken cisterns that, that don't really hold water that satisfy us. And and then the most insidious thing is that we think we're okay. Father, for that, we ask that 
would renew our hearts and you would forgive us and you would cleanse us and help us not be okay to just be okay because you want and deserve more than that but our world needs so much more than us just being okay they need us to be so in love with you to live out this new covenant reality that the law is now written in our hearts the more we understand the beauty of the gospel the more we can be a channel of blessing to those in need more we can bring hope and bring life. Lord, I pray that you would raise up a new breed, a new group of Jeremiah weeping prophets who would so identify the failures of a nation and the failures of a people with our own, so much so that we would weep for them as we would weep over our own sin and soften our hearts. May we not be hardened to it. And then in seeing the bad news, that we can rejoice and bathe and soak and dance in the news that is truly good. Thank you so much for loving us. Loving us, you've made us lovable. And because you've loved us, now we can love you too. Cause this coming to your table and the singing of your song, cause that to deepen our love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. 